Son, your sins are. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up, get your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Um, thank you, Rachel, for leading us so well this morning, just um, deep into the Advent season here and, and thinking of Jesus. Um, folks, keep that uh, Bible passage open before you. This, uh, this series we're in in Mark's Gospel is very much a uh, look at the passage. Uh, you know, the last series was a Bible overview. We were jumping around the Bible a lot more, but today we'll be just in this passage in Mark's Gospel. As you have that open before you, or are opening up, my, my question's not, not a very original one for the time of the year. What do you want for Christmas? What, what do you want? It's a question that we sometimes ask each other, uh, sometimes ask our, our children. Um, it, it's not, not really a particularly a Christmas question, I suppose. It's a question at Christmas time that's really just a, a subset or a particular version of a, of a bigger question. What, what, what do you want? What do we want out of our lives? And in today's passage, as we come close to Jesus, we're going to see him dealing with a, a man, a particular man and his wants. And the interesting thing is Jesus doesn't give him what he wants, at least not initially. The reason Jesus doesn't give him immediately what he wants is that Jesus wants him to want something more, something bigger. Whatever it is we're wanting we don't want enough. Your problem isn't that you're asking for too much. Your problem is that you're settling for too little. That's what we're going to see Jesus uh, say to this man as he deals with him in this story. Just to recap very quickly on this series so far. A couple of weeks ago, Monty, Monty got us going, introduced the series uh, with uh, getting started with Jesus' sermon. And then last week, the second in our series, we got thinking about Jesus' call on our lives. We saw that Jesus was a teacher. We heard his message. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And then we heard his call where he said, come and follow me. And if you remember what we said about that, Jesus' call to come and follow him had an aspect to it that we maybe weren't aware of, that maybe was hidden from us. The idea that when a rabbi calls you to be his disciple, he says he wants you to be like him. Jesus wants to make us not just people who know some stuff about him, but people who are like him, people who are Jesus-y. If you remember, we, we use that word. 
Whenever we were thinking about Jesus' work last week, we focused very much on the idea that he was a teacher. We said that he was a teacher and a healer. Last week, we looked at the the teacher part. This week, we're going to think about the healer. So we're going to think about this healing. If you have your Bible open, you'll notice that there are a couple of healings, actually, in the passage that Rachel read for us. Mark tells us in verses 35 to 39 very briefly about Jesus' absolute dependence on his Father God. There's times he just needs to get away from the crowds to go and be in a quieter place with God. Then he tells us in verses 40 to 45 about a healing, Jesus healing a man with leprosy. I love love what happens there. He heals the guy, tells him, whatever you do, don't tell anyone what's happened here. It's like telling your kid, you know, I don't know if Jesus hadn't, you know that reverse psychology thing we do with your kids, where if you don't want them to finish their dinner, you tell them, whatever you do, don't finish your dinner, and then, you know, it's a bit of that going on. Don't tell anyone. Within a couple of days, everybody in Galilee knows all about this healing. And because of that, because the word spread, everybody in Galilee wants a bit of Jesus. He cannot go anywhere anymore without being in a huge crowd. And actually, that's the context and that's sort of the dramatic driver for this story at the start of chapter 2. It's the crowds. It's the fact that you can't get close to Jesus anymore that gives us this weird incident. We're going to look at this passage through the lens of this man. What the paralyzed man wanted, we're going to notice the more that Jesus offers, and how Jesus gives us more than we've ever wanted. So first of all, this paralyzed man. Picture the scene. It's it's one of those stories we've known since uh, Sunday school, those of us who were in Sunday school. But if somebody is let down on a mat through the rafters, if somebody was let down from above here, I'd probably have to stop because none of you would be listening anymore. You'd just be looking, watching. We'd, we'd just lose what we have here um, for a moment. Everything would be interrupted. Very dramatic scene. And, and you'd be asking yourself, what's going on? Who, who are these guys? What do they want? Well, all of that's going on in this room in Capernaum. Who are these guys? Why are they so desperate to get close to Jesus? And as they catch a glimpse through the the tightly packed crowd, um, they see a man, he's lying on a mat, uh, and then the penny drops with them. Ah, he's paralyzed. Can't walk. His friends have heard that Jesus is a healer, so what any good friend would do, they bring their friend on his mat to Jesus. Uh, They're... Given all that context, it's, it's pretty obvious what should happen next in the story, isn't it? I mean, if you were reading this story for the first time, you'd have a sense of where this is going to go. And Jesus moved towards the mat, held his hand over the man and said, well, what did he say? Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. It's not what we were expecting. Has there been a mix-up? Has this man been triaged wrongly? Have they put him in the wrong line? He, he's, he should be in the paralysis line, the guys who can't walk queue. 
And here he is, and Jesus, you can almost imagine Peter wanting to sort this out. Jesus, he's paralyzed. He wants you to heal him. So there's this thing going on where everybody knew exactly what this man wanted from Jesus. He's paralyzed. Of course, he wants Jesus to heal him. And actually, folks, that's a dynamic that plays itself out for all of us as we approach Jesus. We too know what we want from Jesus. I know this in my own life, and I know it in your lives too as I work with you and have pastoral conversations. We know the things that we want from Jesus. When we're sick, we want him to heal us. When our friends or family are sick, we want him to heal them. When our kids are doing exams, guess what? We want him to help them pass their exams. We want him to give us a happy family. We want him to... We know the things that we want from Jesus. But a bit like this man in this story, he doesn't always seem to give us the thing that we want. You see... Jesus doesn't immediately heal this man because he knows something that this man doesn't know. Jesus knows that this man's a far bigger problem than being paralyzed. Jesus seems to be saying, I understand your problems and I can see see your suffering there in the mat, but please realize that your biggest problem isn't your suffering. It's your sin. By the way, when you hear Jesus saying that, you might think, goodness, that, that's pretty offensive. You know, here's a, a person with a significant disability. Uh, we don't know how long he's had it, maybe all his life. And Jesus is saying, oh, that's not the biggest problem in your life. The biggest problem is, is your sin. Let's slow down and think about that for a second. If someone says to you that the main problem in your life isn't the thing that's happened to you, or the thing that other people are doing to you. The main problem is is in you and the way you're responding. At first, that would sound very, very difficult, but if if you paused and thought about it, you'd realize that it's actually very empowering in the end. Why? Well, because if the worst thing that's happening in my life is only the stuff that's happening to me or that other people are doing to me, there's nothing I can do about that. There's much of life that's beyond my control. But if the biggest problem is in me and is with who I am, maybe there's a responsibility I carry. Maybe there's something that can be done about it. So Jesus is saying to this man, your biggest problem isn't your suffering, it's your sin. We need to be careful when we use words like sin because quite often we grab a sort of a cultural understanding of them, what they might mean, and we miss the, the biblical understanding. What does Jesus mean when he's talking about sin? Well, we talked about this a little bit last week. Sin isn't really The essence of sin isn't the individual things that we do in our lives, the lust or the lying. They're they're more like symptoms of our sin or expressions of it. Our sin, 
the essence of it is a rebellion against God. Do you remember we talked about this last week? Jesus came and he started talking about the kingdom of God, a place where God is king. If that's true, then the essence of sin is saying to God who is king, you're not king. Not in my life. Because I'm king in my life. I'll decide exactly how I want to live, how I want to uh, run my life. I'm going to choose to live life outside of your kingdom, beyond your rule and reign. That's the essence of sin. And it's that sin, says Jesus, that's our biggest problem. So when this guy comes to Jesus, Jesus doesn't immediately want to give him what he wants. Jesus isn't doing him a disservice. It looks like he is. It's kind of hard for us to journey this, but he's not doing him a disservice. Jesus is offering this man far more than he wants, more than he's come looking for. Jesus is saying, you want to be healed of your paralysis. I get that, I understand that. But you're not going deep enough. Your wants are too small. You're not dreaming big enough. You've underestimated the depths of, of the longings in your own heart. Folks, I want to keep pushing a little bit deeper with this to see what's going on here. It's, it's the most normal thing in the world. Of course it is for a person who's been paralyzed to want to walk. I, I'm not going to, I don't want to be hard on that man. Of course, that's uh, exactly his instinct. The danger though is when that becomes the limit of his horizons. When this man says to himself, I've been paralyzed for years or all my life. Once I get, once I get that paralysis sorted, I'm sorted. If only I could walk again, then I'd be set for life. If only I could walk again, then I'd never be unhappy. You could see how he would think that, wouldn't you? If you've been paralyzed, you've been lying on a mat for years. If only I could walk again, I'd never complain. Everything would be all right forever after that. And Jesus is gently saying, No, son. That's not right. If I heal your body and leave it at that, there'd be a time, might be two months, might be four months, when the, the, the euphoria of being able to walk down the street, it'll start to wear off. And you'll find yourself actually just as unhappy as you are now, except a walking unhappy man rather than a lying on a mat unhappy man the roots of your human unhappiness go, go very deep Jesus is saying Jesus encounters this man he says to him I know what you want but I want you to want more so we've thought about what the man the paralyzed man wanted. Let's think for a second about the more that Jesus offered. When Jesus said to the man, son, your sins are forgiving, as we say, he's offering the man more than he at first bargained for. He'll have confused people. People have been, what? 
what's he talking about? He, he'll have confused some, but Mark's quite clear of another reaction. He makes some people very angry. Look at verse 6. Look at the teachers of the law. They're watching this scene unfold. Mark tells us what they were thinking to themselves. Why does this man talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The religious professionals, they, they thought that Jesus was blaspheming. I, I don't know if people, if we still remember what that word means. To be blaspheming means to somehow insult God. And they, they reckon that Jesus is insulting God. Why? Because he's claiming to forgive this man's sins. They know that only God for, can forgive sins. This guy's claiming to be God. In a book which is given us a, a wee bit of inspiration for this series, Tim Keller offers an illustration to help us understand what's going on here. So three guys, Tom, Dick, and Harry, are having a chat one day. Tom punches Dick in the mouth. Blood everywhere. It's a real mess. And then Harry, who sees what's just happened, he steps in, approaches Tom, and he says, Tom, I forgive you for punching Dick in the mouth. It's all right. It's all forgotten about. Now, what's Dick going to say about that when he's calmed down a bit and mopped up the blood? He's going to say, Harry, keep out of it. It has nothing to do with you. You can't forgive Tom. Only I can forgive him. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. You see, the only person who can forgive a sin is the person against whom that sin was perpetrated. Maybe that illustration helps us understand some of the anger of these religious leaders. They're, they're sort of stepping in and defending God. You can't forgive sins because only God can forgive sin. And they're right. The religious leaders, they're right and wrong here. They're right about one thing. They're right that only God can forgive sin. Why is that? Well, God's the only person in the world to whom all of us owe everything. He's our creator. He's given us life. He's made us to enjoy a beautiful relationship with him. So our actions, our sins, even when they're an offense against another person or against the planet, they're all against him. He's the only one who can finally and ultimately forgive us our sins, who can say, Christoph, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus forgives this man his sins, do you see what he's doing? He's just stepping into the God role, taking the God place in the conversation. He says, I am the creator. I'm the king. And I can forgive. The religious leaders see him do that and they're furious. They're hopping mad. Folks, this is the more that Jesus offers. He wants me and you to have more than our health, more than a partner, more than kids with A stars and happy families. He wants to forgive us our sins. 
Because what that means is he wants to bring us back from outside of the kingdom, inside the kingdom. He wants to bring us back away from the Father, back into a perfect relationship with the Father. Here's what he wants. He wants you to live your life saying, all's well with the world. My Father God loves me. The King has made me once more a joyful, loyal servant. He's forgotten everything that I've ever done to offend him. I stand and I live uncondemned, forgiven. That's what he wants for me and for you. Folks, that's the more that we need that Jesus offers. We've thought about what the paralyzed man wanted, about the more that Jesus offers. Finally, for a few moments, how Jesus gives us more than we've ever wanted. One last time, come back to the story with me. The religious leaders are mad with Jesus, but nobody's actually said anything. Mark's clear that they've only been thinking their thoughts. Why does this fellow talk like that? They didn't say it out loud. They didn't have to. Jesus knew what they'd been thinking, and I'm sure they were astonished when he articulated their thoughts for them. It's, it's a bit scary to try and keep secrets from the living God. What's going on here? These men are accusing Jesus of being a fraud. They're accusing him of saying and acting like he's God when in their minds he's clearly not. So to bat away their accusation of his lying and his being a fraud, Jesus asks a very strange question. He says, which is easier? To say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. This question has puzzled biblical scholars ever since Jesus asked it because there are different ways of thinking about it. Um, If I'm honest, I thought I'd nailed this. Uh, For the last decade or so, I've been running with an understanding of this, which I still think has some validity, and I'm going to share it with you. But um, this week, I've spotted another way that I want to look at this. First of all, what I think is the logic of Jesus' argument in the moment. Jesus knows that it's easier or less risky. If you're in a, in a crowded room in Capernaum, in a place where people know you, it's less risky to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven. Because there's no way of proving whether they are or aren't. Who would know? Who would ever be able to test that? It's this sort of thing you can just say and get away with. But saying to the man, get up and walk, when there are eyewitnesses standing all around, that's much harder and much riskier. Because if I say that and the guy doesn't get up or doesn't walk, I'm discredited. I'm shown that I'm not this powerful healer that the rumors say that I am. The evidence is there for all to see. So, in effect, what Jesus has done by saying to this man, your sins are forgiven, you might argue he's done the easy bit. The bit that nobody can verify, nobody can prove. But now look at verse 6. 
Jesus says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Do you see what's going on here? If saying that your sins are forgiven is the easy thing, then Jesus has now done the harder thing too. He's shown that he has the power to command paralyzed people to walk, and everybody in the crowd that day, and everybody reading Mark's gospel as we are here, is being drawn to this unavoidable conclusion. Jesus Christ has the power not only to heal physical diseases and paralysis, the things that we can see, because we can trust him now with these things that we can see, maybe we need to start trusting him with the stuff that we can't see. The son, your sins are forgiven. Wow. Wow. There's somebody here who can do this, who can take everything that's wrong with us, past, present, and future, and make it right. And he's demonstrated that he has power to do it. We're nearly finished. And as I said a moment ago, I thought I had this question nailed for once and for all. Which is easier, to heal the paralytic or to forgive his sins? I thought I had it nailed until I came back to the passage this week. I still think what I've just shared probably does make sense of the logic of what Jesus was doing in Capernaum that day. But there's a bigger view on all of this. And the bigger view says that the forgiving sins is harder by far. What do I mean? Well, healing illnesses, I don't know if you've picked up on this, healing illnesses was hard work for Jesus. He was able to do it, but it was hard work. You have to really pay attention to the Gospels as you read them. Notice the, the human. And, and what we notice there is that when Jesus spends a day healing, he gets tired at the end of that day. There's that story where the woman reached out and touched him because she wanted healing and he felt the strength going out of him. So as anybody who's involved in caring for people will know and will tell you, it, it's hard work, it's draining. So for Jesus to do his healing work was costly. It took him his time and his energy. Don't let's miss that. But make no mistake about it. Forgiving our sins cost him far, far more. Cost him his life. He couldn't simply go and lay a hand on a person and say, son, your sins are forgiven. In the end, it took him to go and spread his hands on a cross to win our forgiveness. He couldn't simply heal us from our sins with a word. There'd come a point where he'd have to go to the cross and it's his words on the cross that show us the cost. My father, why have you forsaken me? The apostle Paul tells us how it was that Jesus won our forgiveness in the end. 
God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I can have the righteousness of God. Because Jesus took all my stuff, all my sin and filth and shame, I can be beautiful, as beautiful before the Father as he is. The Father looks on me now and sees only the beauty of his Son. Folks, we're talking here about what a person wants from their life, what the paralytic wanted, what Jesus offered him. Jesus offers us far, far more than we could ever have dreamed. So what do you want for Christmas? Whatever we've put on our lists, whatever's on there, it's way, way too little. We've dreamed far too small. Let's dream bigger. Let's be sure that we get what we really, really want for Christmas this year. Sins forgiven, peace with God, a clean heart, and a light spirit, a conscience wiped clean. By the way, if you want this, if you came and told me at the door on the way out, here's what I want for Christmas, but I'm not sure I'm going to get it, I would say to you, that's right, I don't know if you're going to get it either. That's what I would say. But if you want this, then I say to you, I am sure that you will get it. You don't even have to be good to get this. All you have to admit is that you, all you have to do is admit that you want it, that you need it, forgiveness of sins and peace with God. You see, that's why he came. This baby that we're celebrating, born in Bethlehem, is the very one who later in his life said, go son, your sins are forgiven. And he still says it today to those who'll ask. Let's pray.